You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Honesty would force us to admit that we would just say, you know what, I've had enough. I mean, even before his first missionary journey, the man was a busy man. After he got saved, he preached throughout Syria and Cilicia and ministered in his hometown. He managed to make the king of Damascus so angry with him that the king of Damascus tried to kill him. And Paul had to be let down through a wall in the basket and run for his life to Jerusalem, where he just angered some people in Jerusalem and had to be sent off to Tarsus where he ministered there, preaching and teaching and traveling in the churches in Tarsus, until Barnabas came to get him and took him to Antioch to help out with the work there, where he took on a pastoral function as an elder in that church and an apostle in that church, and he preached and taught his heart out in Antioch, building the church there as the Lord added to the numbers daily, until the Spirit of God put it upon the heart of the church and spoke through one of the prophets, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas to the work to which I have called them. And then he went on the first missionary journey, and after returning from that, made that long trip to Jerusalem in order to defend the faith against false teachers there. And now he's returned back to Antioch where he is preaching and teaching, and you just get worn out even thinking about all that, doesn't it? It makes me tired just to recount what he did. I mean, let's be honest, in one year's time, the Apostle Paul accomplished more than most men in a lifetime. In one year's time, he planted four churches in Iconium and Antioch and Lystra and Derbe, and he left them with fully discipled, fully trained, appointed elders overseeing each one of those churches in one year's time. Now, the Apostle Paul could easily sit in Antioch and just say, you know what, I have served my time, I have spent myself for the Lord. As I look back upon the last two years of my life, my mind returns to the illness that I had, to John Mark abandoning me, to running for my life, from Iconium to Lystra only to be worshipped and then stoned by the crowd and left for dead. And then I've traveled all the way back here. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I'm going to grab myself a wife, settle down, have some kids, and just preach and teach right here in the church. We would have retired. Not Paul. One trip was not enough for him. In fact, as it turns out, two trips was not enough for the Apostle Paul. It had to be three trips. And Luke gives us all three of those trips. We begin to look today at the second missionary journey, and it begins in Acts chapter 16. So you'll have to have your Bible open to Acts chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. And starting a new section like this gives us the opportunity to sort of take a step back and capture again the big picture of what we're looking at. The book of Acts was written for this purpose, and I will remind you of this as I have throughout the book. The book of Acts was written for this purpose. Luke shows us the sovereign Spirit-directed growth of the church from Jerusalem to Rome. The sovereign, Spirit-directed growth of the church from Jerusalem to Rome. How did Christianity become an exclusively Jewish faith in Jerusalem? How did it go from that to being a mostly Gentile faith all over the Roman world? Well, that's what the book of Acts charts for us. And Luke details for us three of Paul's missionary journeys and one one-way trip to Rome. That's Luke covers all the way up to that part of Paul's life. Three missionary journeys and a one-way trip to Rome. We've looked at the first missionary journey, Acts chapter 13 and 14. 
Between that, the, the first and the second, there is this little interlude, the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 16 begins the second of Paul's missionary journeys. Now, the Jerusalem Council got the issue of the gospel out of the way. We've solved that. What is the gospel? How is a man saved? That question has been determined. All of the leadership of the church, the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem, have given Paul the green light for a full-throttle thrust of Gentile evangelism. So in the first part of the book of Acts, Gentiles are sort of trickling into the church. The Ethiopian eunuch, the half-Jews of the Samaritans, Cornelius. But by the end of the first missionary journey, this trickle has become a steady stream. That's what raised the Jerusalem Council. Friends, by the end of Acts chapter 18, that steady stream of the growth of Christianity, Christianity is going to take on a life of its own. The dam will break, so to speak. And the, the Christian church is about to go from a very regional thing to a very international, very big thing. And it focuses on one man who is primarily the vessel of God through which that happened, and that was Paul the Apostle. So that's the overview of the last half of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16 begins the first missionary journey, and this is going to take us, turn over to Acts chapter 18, verse 22. That's the end of the first missionary journey where Luke records when he had landed, that is Paul, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. That ends missionary journey chapter 2. Sorry, missionary journey number 2. Missionary journey number 3 begins immediately, verse 23. Having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region, Phrygia, and strengthened all the disciples. And off he goes again for number 3. Back to Acts chapter 16, verse 1. The date of Acts chapter 16, verse 1, is about 50 A.D. Now, if Paul left in the spring, which most people suspect that he did, that would make it the year 50 A.D. The Jerusalem Council was in 49 A.D. As we get to Acts chapter 16, we're at 50 A.D. Now, the second missionary journey is going to introduce us to a lot of interesting characters. Let me name for you a few. Because of the second missionary journey, we get introduced to Silas. He's also known as Silvanus in the epistles. Silas is mentioned in 2 Corinthians in 1 Thessalonians, and in 2 Thessalonians, and by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5. So Silas appears four times outside of the book of Acts. We're also introduced to some other interesting characters. Luke joins Paul during the second missionary journey. We're introduced to Priscilla and Aquila, and to the first recorded European convert, a woman by the name of Lydia. Most significantly, we are introduced to a man named Timothy. Timothy is going to become Paul's right-hand man, his disciple, his, his sort of protege, his student, a very godly man. And Timothy plays a major part in all of this. And we get introduced to him today. Consider this. Timothy has two books of the New Testament that were written directly to him. Guess which ones they were? Hard guess. First Timothy and Second Timothy. On top of that, he's mentioned in three other books, the book of Romans, the book of First Corinthians and the book of Hebrews mentions that Timothy spent some time in prison and then was released. That's mentioned in the book of Hebrews. On top of that, we see Timothy participating in six other New Testament epistles, either in their delivery or in their composition or in something about what was going on behind the scenes. And that would be Second Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, and Philemon. So outside of the book of Acts, Timothy appears in no less than 11 different New Testament books. He's a major player. Now on top of the characters that are mentioned to us in the book of Acts, in the second missionary journey, we're also introduced to a few key cities. 
The first missionary journey set the context for the book of Galatians. When was Galatians written? Right after the first missionary journey before the Jerusalem Council. That's when Galatians was written to those churches that Paul founded in his first missionary journey. The second missionary journey introduces us to the church in Philippi, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Corinth, and the church in Ephesus. So this composes the background for six New Testament epistles. Two to the Corinthians, two to the Thessalonians, one to the Philippians, and one to the Ephesians. So you can quickly see that understanding the details and the flow of this second missionary journey is going to open up and give us the keys to so much more of the New Testament. Key players, key cities, key events that will be mentioned in all of these epistles that Paul is detailing. And we'll kind of hit these as we go along throughout these chapters. A couple more details that I need to mention. You'll notice on the back of your bulletin insert that there are two maps there. And I put them side by side, the first missionary journey and the second missionary journey, so that you are able to sort of compare and contrast those two. And you can see as you look at those how much more extensive the second journey is than the first. The first one is relatively small compared to the second one. A couple little pieces of information. First of all, the Apostle Paul will travel 2,800 miles on this second missionary journey. 2,800 miles. To put that in perspective, that is the equivalent of traveling from Houston, Texas to Washington, D.C. and back. That's 2,800 miles. This is how far Paul is going to travel. It's going to take him three years to do it. And here's the second little piece of information. The Apostle Paul, as he leaves in Acts chapter 16, is nearing 50 years old. 50 years old. Well, that's serious. Most people date Paul's birth around 5 A.D., between that and a couple years prior to that, somewhere in that neighborhood, he is 45, maybe approaching 50 years old. He'll probably be 50 or slightly past 50 by the time he returns from his missionary journey. Now, for those of you who are sitting out here for whom 50 is a distant memory, you can remember being 50, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, when I was 50 years old, I had all the vim and the vigor and the vitality necessary to accomplish a missionary journey like this. I would have run circles around old Paul. Now, for those of you for whom 50 is a distant future, I should say, for those of us for whom 50 is a distant future, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, when I'm 50 years old, I'm going to have all the vim and the vigor and the vitality necessary to have accomplished a task like this. I'll be able to run circles around old Paul. For those of you who are 50, I know what you're thinking. How did he do it? My hat goes off to the man. And it must, isn't that true? He's approaching 50 years old and he's setting out on a 2,800-mile, three-year journey. Friends, that is impressive. That is why they knew, the Romans knew, Nero knew, the only way to stop this man is to kill him. And that's what they tried to do in every city that he went to. Now that sort of paints the big picture for us of this second missionary journey. Let's look at the details. And I want you to notice two things this morning. As Paul begins his missionary journey, he does two things. First of all, he has the right personnel. And second, he has the right policies. The right personnel. Chapter 16, let's read these first five verses. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Oh, back to circumcision again. Verse 4, now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles 
and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. I want you to notice how Paul chose the right personnel. Chapter 15, the beginning of the end of chapter 15, and the beginning of this missionary journey introduces us to the first of two key men on this trip, and that is Silas. You'll notice at the end of chapter 15, after his argument with Barnabas, Paul chose Silas and left being commended to the grace of God. Chapter 15, verse 40. 41 says they were traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, Paul, Paul chose Silas because Silas is a key individual. Here's why Silas is a good choice. First of all, Silas was a prophet. You remember Acts chapter 15, verse 32? Silas was a prophet. He had come to Antioch. Paul had seen him preach. Paul had seen him teach. He knew his giftedness. He knew his abilities. Silas would be an excellent teacher to accompany the Apostle Paul. Furthermore, Silas was a proponent of Paul's ministry of Gentile evangelism because Silas had been in the Jerusalem Council and the Jerusalem Council under James's leadership had sent Silas and Judas down to Antioch to deliver the decrees and Silas there had preached and taught in that church on those decrees. So not only was he a prophet, but he also was a, a proponent of Paul's ministry and his Gentile evangelism. But furthermore, Silas had participated in the Jerusalem church, in the Jerusalem Council, and this whole issue of circumcision is still being debated. It is still being kicked around. People are still pushing for it. Silas would be a perfect companion who was a leader in the Jerusalem church, and Paul could turn to him and say, ask him what they decided. He was a proponent of Paul's ministry, and he had been at the Jerusalem council. Silas could do what he did in Antioch. He could do that in all the other cities, deliver the decrees that the council had decided upon as a representative from Jerusalem. On top of all of that, Silas is a Roman citizen. Now that's going to come in handy in a couple weeks and you'll see this. He's a Roman citizen. He's a good choice for the Apostle Paul. So Paul chooses Silas. Verse 6, chapter 16, verse 1 says they came to Derby and Lystra and a disciple was there named Timothy. So you'll notice that they don't sail to Cyprus like they did in the first missionary journey. Paul heads north and he retraces his step. The first place is Derby, which is where Paul turned around and went back through the churches on the first missionary journey. He arrives in Derby and then he goes on to Lystra where he discovers he has a young man there named Timothy. Now, do you remember Lystra? Do you remember Lystra? Paul would remember Lystra. Do you know why Paul would remember Lystra? It's in Lystra that he was stoned and drug outside the city and left for dead. Listen, folks, just showing up in Lystra would endanger his life. And that's one of the first cities he goes to. How could Paul do that? Because he didn't consider his life as dear to himself on any account in order that he may finish his race with joy and the ministry that he received from the Lord Jesus, Acts 20, verse 24. Paul wasn't concerned about his own life. He went through Derby, showed up in Lystra. Lystra was the apex of his suffering. That is the, that is the, the point at which Paul suffered the most is in Lystra. And there he finds a young man named Timothy, who is the second individual that we're introduced to on the second missionary journey. He comes across Timothy. Now look what Luke says about Timothy. He was a believer... Uh, sorry, he was a disciple, and he was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted this man to go along with him. So Timothy has an interesting family situation. His mother is a believer. Second Timothy chapter 1 tells us his grandmother Lois is also a believer. His mother Eunice is a believer, and Timothy is a believer, but Luke says his father was a Greek. Now notice that Luke doesn't indicate to us that Timothy's father was saved. You notice that? And Paul, when Paul talks about Timothy's family and talks about the sincere faith that was in his grandmother Lois, 
in his mother Eunice and was in Timothy as well. Paul doesn't mention any siblings that Timothy had. And Paul doesn't mention Timothy's father who was a Greek. From all accounts, for all intents and purposes, we are to assume that Timothy's father was a pagan and that he died a pagan. We never read of his faith. We never read of the fact that he was a believer. And we never read of the fact that he became a believer. On top of all of that, the imperfect tense verb of he was that Luke uses there to describe Timothy's father indicates that Timothy's father was likely dead by this time. So Timothy's mother is a widow. Timothy's father has died, which would explain why Paul sort of became a father figure to him, took him under his wing, and wanted to take Timothy with him. Now, what is it? Oh, by the way, do you know how old Timothy would be at this time? He's a young man. He's a disciple, and he's a young man. Fourteen years after this, Paul would write to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Fourteen years later, Timothy would still be considered a youth. So how old is Timothy here? Likely his late teens, 15, 16, 17, 18, maybe 20 at the outside, maybe 20. He's a very young man. Let me ask you a question, by the way. How many of you parents would send your young teen, your only son, off with Paul for three years? How many of you would do that? Oh, no, you wouldn't. I know what you're thinking. I would never do that. It's a good thing you weren't Timothy's parents, isn't it? Or we wouldn't have a Timothy. We wouldn't have 1 Timothy and we wouldn't have 2 Timothy. Because you can think of a dozen reasons in your in your mind why that's, why that's an unbiblical thing to do. And none of them are good reasons, to be honest with you. Timothy was a young man. Paul wanted to take him. How many of you, having been widowed, would send your only son with the Apostle Paul, knowing that the last time he was in your town, he was stoned and left for dead? And you saw it. You know what happened. And knowing that every town that he goes to, he's a hunted man, and his life, and everybody's life with him is in danger. Are you going to send your son off with him? (laughs) Different world, isn't it? They sent Timothy off with Paul, and he was with him for three years. Paul saw something in Timothy. Paul saw something in Timothy that he liked. And it says he wanted to take this man with him. What did Paul see? First of all, the Apostle Paul saw in Timothy a good reputation. Do you notice the text says that he was well spoken of by all the brethren in Lystra and in Iconium? Timothy had a good reputation. He is what Paul would call above reproach. He is a young man. And even in spite of the fact that he is only in his late teens, Timothy has already distinguished himself in the eyes of the brethren, not in one city, in one church, but in two different churches, the believers speak well of this young man. Even though he is only a teenager... He has in the last year and a half to two years since Paul was there, he has, he has been discipled, he has grown in the Scriptures, his heart is there. Here is a young man, when, when all the brethren in those two cities speak of him, they speak well of him. That's a mature young man. That's a man who loves the Lord. That's a man who's obedient. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. We can count on him. He was well spoken of. The fact that he was spoken well of in two cities indicates to me that the attempt... The, the young man Timothy had some sort of association or some sort of connection in at least two different churches. They knew him in both cities. Maybe that's because he had some sort of a ministry to both of those churches. Maybe he was teaching in both churches or having some other sort of leadership function in both churches. Whatever it was, he was well known to two churches in two cities separated by about 20 miles, and they all spoke well of him. He had a good reputation. Second, the Apostle Paul was able to discern in Timothy some giftedness. 
Many times in his epistles, in fact twice, Paul mentions Timothy's spiritual gift. From other references in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, it indicates that his spiritual gift was teaching. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Stir up the spiritual gift which is in you through the laying on of the elders' hands. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, Kindle afresh the gift that is in you through the laying on of my hands. Timothy had a spiritual gift, and his gift was teaching. And Paul could see that, Paul could recognize that, Paul knew it. And he said, this young man will be a powerhouse of effective service. You say, how is it that somebody who is in their late teens could distinguish themselves with their giftedness and their heart, even after only becoming a believer for a couple years? And is it really possible that the Lord would give the gift of teaching and preaching to a man who is only 17, maybe 18 years old? The answer to that question is an unqualified yes. Absolutely. I ran into guys all the time, men, all, young men, 17, 18, 19, 20, all the time in Bible college who had a spiritual gift of teaching and preaching. They were gifted men who could teach and preach better than some of my professors. And God uses young people. But the secret is that young people surrender and submit themselves to the Lord and be used by Him. Paul could discern a good reputation, commitment to the Lord. He was well spoken of. That's the type of man you want to have in ministry. Second, the Apostle Paul could discern Timothy's giftedness. But third, there's something else that Paul says about Timothy that's not here in Acts. It's actually in a letter that's not even written to Timothy. It's in the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul gives Timothy the highest compliment that could be paid to any man, anytime, anywhere. The highest compliment is this. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle says, we are to look out not for our own interests, but for the interests of others. We are to have the mind of Christ, which considers other people as more important than ourselves. And then Paul gives two examples. First, he gives the example of Christ, who did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. You want a second example? The Apostle Paul says, I'll give you Timothy. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul says, I hope in the Lord to come to you soon, but until then, I'm going to send to you Timothy. You know his proven worth. Then Paul says this, I have no one else of like mind like me who will look out for your own interests and not their others. Everybody else seeks for their own interests, Paul says. But Timothy will be rightly concerned for Christ's interests. Friends, that is the highest compliment you could pay anybody. I have, I know nobody else, Paul says, like Timothy. This man and this man alone, I am convinced I can send to you because he will consider others as more important than himself. The man has the mind of Christ. Most important qualification. That's young Timothy. Paul could discern all of that. So Silas has replaced Barnabas. Timothy has replaced John Mark. And so the Apostle Paul in verse 3, we get a, a glimpse at his policy. He's got the right personnel. He's got Silas and he's got Timothy. Verse 3, Paul wanted this man to go with him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Oh. Now here we are, circumcision again. What on earth is the Apostle Paul doing? Didn't he just spend all of Acts chapter 15 fighting against this? Didn't he just contend for the faith and, and get a decree from Jerusalem that circumcision is not necessary for salvation or for sanctification? And yet when he comes to Lystra and he sees Timothy, what does he do? He circumcises Timothy. What is he doing? Now some people have charged all kinds of crazy things because of this passage. They say, well, Luke fabricated this. This never really happened. Luke's just lying to us. I don't buy that for a minute. 
Second, they say, well, Paul was just being inconsistent. This is his little Peter syndrome, you know, where Peter compromised to pressure and he gave in and started not eating with the Gentiles in Antioch in Galatians chapter 2. This is Paul's little Peter episode. No. Some people say that Paul was being a hypocrite. He would contend publicly for gospel free of circumcision, but privately he was circumcising all of his disciples. Now, that's not true either. What's going on here? I want you to notice two things from the text. First of all, salvation is not the issue because Luke tells us he was already a disciple before Paul showed up. In fact, on Paul's first missionary journey, that's when he led Timothy to the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 says he calls Timothy my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Paul had led Timothy to Christ. Now on his second missionary back journey back through, he sees what has happened with Timothy. He observes his reputation and his teaching gift and he says, I want to take him along, but there's one problem. He's not circumcised. Well, you say, why is that an issue? Well, for Paul, he's going to circumcise him before he takes him on his missionary journey. Isn't Paul compromising the gospel by circumcising Timothy? Not at all. Well, why is Paul doing this? Well, it has nothing to do with salvation because Timothy was already a disciple. But second, the text indicates to us the reason why. Because Timothy's father was a Greek. And everybody knew that. You see, here's Timothy's unique situation. His mother is a Jew, so legally, legally, he is Jewish. That's how everybody would view him. That's how the Gentiles would view him, legally as a Jew. So the Gentiles would look at Timothy and say, he's not one of us, he's a Jew, because his mother was a Jew. Now the Jews would look at Timothy and say, he's not one of us, even though his mother's a Jew, even though he's legally a Jew. He is a Jew in every respect except for one. He's never been circumcised. Now why wasn't he circumcised? His father was a Greek. Maybe his father just said, no, I'm going to raise my son as a pagan. I don't want him circumcised. I don't want him to be a Jew. I want him to follow in dad's footsteps. I want him to be a chip off the old block. Maybe that's why he wasn't circumcised. But in any case, he wasn't circumcised. So the Jews would look at him, and at best, Timothy would be, be viewed as somebody who was born a Jew, but had renounced his Jewish heritage because he wouldn't be circumcised. And so at best, Timothy would be an apostate Jew. So here's Timothy in the middle. The Gentiles don't see him as a Gentile because to him, to them, there he's a Jew. He was born a Jew. The Jews don't see him as a Jew. To them, he is a Gentile who wants to live like a pagan. He's never been circumcised, so he's an apostate Jew. Now, if Paul takes him along on his missionary journey and he goes to the next city, what's going to happen? Are the Jews going to receive Paul's gospel? Now they're going to say, this guy's got an apostate Jew on his team. So Paul circumcises him. The issue is this. The bottom line is this. This issue is going to come up in every city that they went to. And Timothy not being circumcised would be an unnecessary stumbling block to the Jews that Paul would be trying to meet with and to win to Christ. Timothy would not be able to go in and function in the synagogues because he wasn't circumcised, and everybody in those parts knew it. Everybody knew Timothy's father was a Greek and his mother was a Jew. He's never been circumcised. He couldn't function in the synagogues. And they would hold that against him. So for Paul, this is simply something of expediency. For Paul, this is a minor surgical operation to remove a major stigma. We are not going to create a stumbling block in the eyes of the Jews. We are trying to bring the gospel to the Jews. And so Paul's principle was this. I will do, without compromising the gospel, I will do anything necessary to remove any stumbling block that would cause somebody to cast aspersions on my gospel. I do not want Jews to be needlessly offended at the fact that I have an uncircumcised Jew. It's a minor surgical operation. Circumcision and non-circumcision is nothing for the Apostle Paul. This is simply a surgery performed for a very practical purpose, and that is to give Timothy full standing in the eyes of the Jews. Remove the stumbling block. 
That's the principle that you and I live by. We should have nothing in our lives and hold on to nothing in our lives that causes us to be an unnecessary stumbling block to people we're trying to reach with the gospel. So have the surgery done. It's not for salvation. Paul doesn't view it as something that Timothy needs in order to be super spiritual. It's just to make him a more effective missionary. It's just to give him that standing in the eyes of the Jews so that they can reach Jews. Timothy can go into the synagogue. He can fully participate. He can help the Apostle Paul. It's simply for expediency's sake, not salvation. That's the right policy that Paul had. He was conscientious. First, I want you to notice, or first, first he was commissioned. Second, he was conscientious. The Apostle Paul was rightly commissioned at the end of Acts chapter 15. It says there that Paul told Silas, and he, Paul chose Silas, and he left being committed by the brethren to the grace of God. This is the pattern that the Apostle Paul followed. The Apostle Paul would not just go out on his own and do his own thing. The Apostle Paul was commissioned. He was committed by the brethren, by the local church, to the grace of God. At the beginning of Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas, with prayer and fasting, they commissioned them and they sent them out. When they got back at the end of Acts chapter 14, verse 26, Luke says that they came back to Antioch from where they had been commissioned. And now at the beginning of their second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul leaves being commended to the, God, to the grace of God. They sent him out. That is so much different than what we see happening amongst Christianity and in Christianity today. You know what happens today? Someone says, well, I, I feel led to start a church, start a Bible study, start a ministry. And so they run out and they do it. You know what the pattern I see in the New Testament is? Men and women being raised up from amongst the church where spiritual oversight can discern their giftedness and their qualifications and their calling and then commission them to a work. That's the pattern in the New Testament. What happens today is people say, God's called me to be a pastor, so I'm going to go start a church. And what happens, this is pandemic in home Bible studies. It is pandemic amongst little home churches. You can look in vain at some ministries and some home churches, and some Bible studies for any kind of pastoral oversight, any kind of accountability to a local body. And you know why? Because men who do this, their elders and doctrinally sound men in the local church wouldn't touch that ministry with a ten-foot pole. But they're off doing their own thing. That's not what I see happening in the New Testament. What I see happening in the New Testament with Paul and Barnabas, with Paul and Silas, and with Timothy, is men raised up within the local body and sent out where the body and the leadership of the body can recognize their giftedness, recognize their calling, recognize their qualifications, and say, we will place our blessing upon you for that ministry. That's the pattern of the New Testament. It should be a red flag when you look at a ministry or a home Bible study or a home church and you got to ask yourself, where's the accountability here? What body is overseeing this? Who's directing this? Some guy who says he's called by God? Or thinks God spoke to him and told him to start this? Where's the calling? Where's the accountability? Nine out of ten times, there's none. And that's dangerous. This was the pattern with Paul and Barnabas. They sent him out, Acts 13. This is the pattern with Paul and Silas at the end. And you know this is the pattern with Timothy as well? It doesn't say this in the book of Acts, but it says it in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Before Timothy went with Paul, there was a commissioning. Paul says, stir up the gift that is in you through the laying on of the hands of the elders. Kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. 
there was some sort of commissioning between Timothy's elders and the Apostle Paul where they recognized God's calling, they recognized his giftedness, they recognized his qualifications, and they sent him out, they laid hands on him, they prayed for him, and they sent him with Paul. That's how it happens. That's what happened with Timothy. Paul was commissioned. He was conscientious, so he circumcised Timothy. And third, the Apostle Paul was consistent. Look what verse 4 says. While they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So they have the, the letter that James wrote in their hands. And they're going through Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, and they're delivering the decrees of the Jerusalem Council from Acts 15. And I would imagine that there was happening there what was going on in Antioch, that Silas was encouraging the believers, and that the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy were teaching and preaching in the churches. And what was happening? Verse 5 says, The churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Now, if you've been with us through the whole book of Acts, you have to observe how it is that that Dr. Luke connects for us always numerical growth and the preaching and teaching ministry of the Word, which builds up the saints. Luke never says the church was growing and just accounts that for us out of thin air. Luke always says they were preaching, they were teaching, they were delivering the decrees, they were ministering in the churches, and because the Word of God was being lifted up and the Word of God was being preached and taught, the churches were growing in number daily. And so Luke reminds us again, my friends, that God honored and God blessed growth in a church or in a ministry happens as a result of the faithful and consistent and accurate teaching of His Word. All the time. God does not grow His church through advertising, through programs, through radio programs, through the Internet, through tape ministries. God does not grow His church through uh, compromising it or compromising the message or repackaging the gospel or taking out the offense or doing any of that. God's method of church growth is real simple. You preach the Word, you pray that God will bless it, and then you repeat steps one and two. That's what we're called to do. Preach the Word, teach the Word, pray for God's blessing, and then repeat steps one and two. And as a result of God's Word being preached and God's people being taught, the church was strengthened, they were edified and encouraged in the faith, and God added to their numbers daily. Now God, Churches do grow through advertising. Churches do grow through compromise and putting on flashy programs and all that stuff. Churches do grow. The fastest way to fill this building would be to do all of that. But I have no indication from Scripture that that's the work of God. What I do see in Scripture is this. When churches are faithful to the Word, they love the Word, they obey the Word, and they teach the Word, guess what happens? God adds to their number daily. Paul was commissioned. He was conscientious. And Paul was consistent. He didn't change his strategy for missionary journey number two. did the same thing he did on missionary journey number one. From city to city, preaching and teaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Consistency. So he had the right personnel, and Paul had the right policies. Now that's just the beginning of the second missionary journey. And the Lord is about to turn Paul in a direction that Paul could have never seen coming. And you're going to have to look at that because we'll get to it next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and we thank You that You honor Your Word, and we thank You that You are glorified as long as Your Word is lifted up and obeyed and proclaimed and preached and sung. And we ask, God, that You would continue to remind us of the qualities and the qualifications and the truths that are necessary to be effective ministers for Christ, like Paul, like Silas, and like Timothy. We thank you for their their example to us in every respect. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.